is a perfect justice. God's justice is a holy justice. Why? Because God is a holy God. Now, this word holy in our generation, people use that word very loosely. You guys know they'll say holy smoke, holy cow, which, by the way, when I went to India, I found out why people think or why that expression is used, holy cow. So next time you say that, think twice. It's, in India, they really believe cows are holy, but people don't really understand what that word means. The word holy in the original language means to be set apart or a cut above. Uh, but a cut above what? The illustration that I like to use is that all of us, no matter who you are, young, old, everyone has an idea of what perfection means. People might think of a perfectly played piano recital or whatever your idea is of perfection. Well, imagine, if you will, this morning that the Bible I'm holding in my hand, that this line represents perfection. Holiness is a cut above that. And so this is the way I think it gives a good picture for human human sake or for human understanding to understand what holiness is. God is above perfection. His holiness is above any idea of perfection that we can think of. That means his holiness is a reflection of all of his other attributes, meaning his love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His, any other attribute you can think of is tied to that holiness. So God's justice, again, is a perfect justice. It's a holy justice. This means, without exception, that God will always do the just thing. God will always do the righteous thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says, the rock, talking about God, his work is perfect. His ways are entirely just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm chapter 89, verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So God is a God of infinite holy justice and who loves justice, who loves holy justice. This means by default that he must hate injustice. And our proverb this morning finds itself at the heart of God's hatred for injustice. Again, it says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the just, both are detestable or both are an abomination to the Lord. God hates injustice. That being said, I want to give us a couple of examples of uh, uh, the guilty being set free and then a couple examples of the just being condemned so we can have a real-world picture and a real-world understanding of what injustice is. Uh, So most of these examples you guys are going to know about, or at least some of you in the room will. The first example I want to bring up is in 1992, out in Los Angeles, California, there was a group of police officers who excessively beat a motorist named Rodney King. And all these police officers, even though the video evidence was very clear that what they had done was excessive, they were all acquitted, which eventually led to the the riots in Los Angeles. Why? Because people saw the injustice and they said, we cannot stand for this. And these are sinful people seeing this injustice happen. Something more recent. On January 18th, 2016, there was a man named Daniel Shaver of Granbury, Texas, and he was fatally shot by a police officer named Philip Brailsford in the hallway of La Quinta Inn Suites in, in, in Mesa, Arizona. Now, when, Brailsford, uh, when uh, Shaver was shot by Brailsford, he was laying down on the floor with his hands on his head, and he shot him dead. Now, Brailsford was charged with second-degree murder and a lesser manslaughter charge, but was found not guilty. And he was later reinstated to the Mesa Police Department, in August of 2018, but then, get this, was granted early retirement on medical grounds about a month later with a lifetime pension of $2,500 per month. 
And Brailsford lawyer's argument was that Brailsford suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the shooting and the trial that re resulted after that. So he went from being the criminal to the victim. Of course, most people don't know about that because that doesn't fit the narratives that are in our media. But you can go on YouTube and, and, and Shaver's wife even pleads with people to help stand up for her husband because of the injustice that was done. Um, so those are a couple examples of when the guilty are set free, when, the, the, the right, when, when those who are wicked have been liberated, when God abhors that. But now let's look at the opposite, when, when there's the just who are condemned. There's an older Denzel Washington movie. Maybe you guys know it. It's a movie called The Hurricane. And it's about a boxer named Reuben Carter. And Reuben Carter was at the peak of his career. It's a good movie if you haven't seen it. And Reuben Carter uh, was, is charged with murder, and he spends 19 years in prison. 19 years, and eventually the, the evidence comes out, and, and he's de declared innocent after 19 years. But he spent 19 years in prison. And that's just one example of countless people who are convicted for crimes that they did not commit. But then there's some other more abstract ideas of when the just are condemned. Uh, for example, you have wicked ideologies like critical theory and things like that that say people groups are, because they're associated with this people group, are all guilty, even though they're not. That's the just being condemned wrongfully. Or how about something that probably hits home? At least I don't know how it was here. In Romania in 2021, they made vaccination of the COVID vaccination mandatory to participate in society. You couldn't go in grocery stores. We couldn't do nothing. And of course, I don't, if you, I'm not here to preach on the vaccination. If you want to get vaccinated, that's on you. No problem. But I don't think the state should have the right to mandate that on people. That's a different conversation. So, but everyone that was unvaxxed was treated as if they were guilty of being, having the, the virus and spreading the virus, even if it wasn't true. We had a couple in our church that their parents got that were tested with COVID, and uh, because obviously they're around them, they got tested too. The test came back negative. They had multiple tests, the, the quick test, the PCR test, all that stuff came back negative, but the government said, you have to quarantine for two weeks because you're not vaccinated. So they were attributed guilty of having the virus, even though that wasn't true because they didn't follow the mandates of the vaccination. So these are more abstract ideas of when the guilty are, when the, when the just are condemned. But all of these things, both the, 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 the examples of when the, the guilty are set free and when the just are condemned, these are an abomination to God. They are detestable. And therefore, to us as God's people, like any true injustice, they should be an abomination to us. They should be detestable to us as God's people. And they, that means that they should also have real-life implications for you and I. And that's just not my opinion. That's what the Scriptures uh, affirm. I'll give you a couple of well-known verses that you guys are probably familiar with that uh, attest to this. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he sa it says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or another Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, open your mouth for those with no voice or for the mute, for the rights of those who are destitute. That's why we go and we proclaim the gospel at the abortion mills, for the innocent lives that have no voice the injustice that's being done in the name of convenience, in the name of choice, as 
God's people, we need to be champions of justice or fighting against injustice. So as being God's people and understanding his character, it should move us to be people who stand up against perversions of what justice is, right? So injustices that need to be spoken of. Christians have a place in this world opening their mouths to do those things. It doesn't mean we get overly political and we get caught up in those things, but no, we are to stand up for justice, ladies and gentlemen. Now, everything that I've said about this proverb up to this point in time is true. The way we've talked about it, the examples we've used, the application points, it's all true. But if you remember at the start of the message, I said, I pray to God about what he would have to be an encouragement for any believer at any time in any geographical location. So with that being said, now maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Michael, I, I agree with what you're saying. We should be champions of justice. We should be Christians who are active. But how exactly is this an encouragement, in the, the, the encouragement that you were, you were talking about? Well, to receive that answer, ladies and gentlemen, we need to go a little farther with this proverb. We need to go a little bit deeper. So what do you mean? Well, there's something we need to keep in mind whenever, we're, whenever we are reading, whenever we're preaching, whenever we're studying, whenever we're trying to apply the Scriptures to our lives. What is that? Well, there's a story in, in the Scriptures. It's, it's, most Christians are familiar with it. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in the 24th chapter. It's after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And there's two of his disciples, and they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus begins to walk with them, but they don't understand or they don't recognize who Jesus is. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with them, and they begin talking about what has taken place over that weekend, that Jesus, about Jesus' crucifixion, and, and everyone is in disarray. And after this conversation has take, taken place, Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Christ or the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I want to draw your attention to verse 44, specifically when Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of the Mo and Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What was he talking about there? Well, unlike our Bibles, unlike our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is not divided up the way our Old Testament is divided up. It's divided up into three parts. The first part is called the Torah, in English, the Law of Moses. The second part is called the Nevim, which is the prophets, and then the Kituvim, which is a section called the writings. And this section called the writings, the first book, the way that the Jewish Bible is organized, is the Psalms. And it was the longest book in the first book. And so oftentimes, they would refer to the writings as the Psalms. So what Jesus is saying here, He's saying everything in the right, everything in the Tanakh, sorry, that's the word I was looking for. Everything in the Tanakh, the Jewish, the Jewish Bible, is about me. So he's basically saying it all points to me. That means when we're looking at the Old Testament, it needs to be understood in the context of the New Testament. Why? Because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. A lot of people don't understand when we say the Old Testament, New Testament, it, it can also be understood as Old Covenant, New Covenant. 
So it needs to be understood specifically through Jesus Christ himself. As he said in these verses, all of it is pointing towards me. Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, is the centerpiece of the Scriptures. An expression that we like to use, um, at least in our church, in our, in our circle, is that the Old Testament is Christ concealed, the New Testament is Christ revealed. This means that every time we preach from the Old Testament or we look at the Old Testament, we have to do so through the lens of the New Testament. We need to understand that it's pointing towards Jesus Christ. Now, of course, fundamentally, there's other truths that we can glean from the Old Testament. We've already done that this morning with our proverb. What we talked about is true. It's a wise saying about hating injustice, that God hates injustice. But we need to understand that there's a meta-narrative of Scripture that is Jesus Christ, God redeeming a people for himself. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I don't agree with you. I don't agree that the whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ. If that's not true, if the Bible isn't about Jesus Christ, and ultimately the Old Testament is just a, a, a collection of moral stories that we can try to glean some wisdom from and apply to ourselves. I'll use an example of a, another famous story that you guys know. The story of Samson. Everyone, that's a Sunday school story. Most people know the story of Samson, the guy with really long hair that was really strong. And Samson, at the end of his life, picks up the, the gates of the city and carries them to the top of the hill and he pushes them down and crashes them. Ladies and gentlemen, that story is not only about Samson. It is about Samson and there's truth and application about him in his life and how he can apply that, but that also points to someone greater than Samson who picked up the gates of hell and climbed up another hill, the hill of Calvary, and he pushed them down and disintegrated them into pieces. The Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. Everything in the Old Testament to some degree has something that's pointing towards Jesus Christ. It comes in all kinds of different forms, typology, and different, different aspects of, of, of uh, things that point to Jesus Christ. With that being said, now let's get back to our proverb. So I want to take us, that's what, it, that's what it means to go a little bit further. We're not just going to look at the intention of the human author, we're going to look at the intention of the divine author and what it was pointing towards. Again, our proverb this morning says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. God is a just God. He's a perfectly holy just God. As God's people, we should hate injustice. But because God is a just God, ladies and gentlemen, this proverb presents a real problem for you and I as Christians. Almost seems like a contradiction. Well, why is that? Well, what do we sing about all the time as Christians? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sorry for my bad voice. The point is, is that we sing about being justified. Wicked people, not innocent people, being justified. According to this proverb and the rest of Scripture and what it declares about God's character, this is an abomination to the Lord. That's a big problem. It's, it's what we, it leads to what we call at our church the great dilemma. We teach it this way. There's a great dilemma that runs through the pages of Scripture. What is that great dilemma that needs an answer? The, the great dilemma is this. How does 
a holy and righteous or just God forgive unholy and unrighteous sinners like you and I without compromising his holiness and justice? And the answer is, is that he cannot. For him to compromise, that would be an abomination. He would cease to be a just God. He would cease to be a holy God. Here's a, here's a different way to think about it. Romanian political system is absolutely corrupt. It's a very, very corrupt culture. The remnants of communism are still there. They take money from the outside, the European Union. They pocket it. It's, it's a mess. A few years ago, a politician got caught. They got caught, and the evidence was crystal clear that they were guilty. They brought it before a Romanian judge. The judge looked at the evidence and said, nah, I'm going to let him go. Nobody's perfect. Romanians were outraged, rightfully so. Why? Because the judge's job is to uphold the law that they've been entrusted to uphold. In that case, it was the Romanian law. Here in the United States, we've also seen examples when courts and, and, and judges don't do their job and uphold the law of the land. In fact, they try to reinterpret it to fit their agendas, which we all know means that they cease to be good judges in that moment. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, the moment a holy and just God for, for, uh, forgives people without, without uh, just cause, he immediately ceases to be holy and just. Why? Because his standard is not the law of Romania. It's not the law of the United States. It's not whatever morals we create for ourselves. God's standard is above perfection. God's law is that place of absolute holiness that if anyone does not measure up to, they cease to be holy and they need to be judged according to that standard. And they will be. God is a just God, and the righteousness is what his throne is established on, as we, heard, as we read before in Psalm 89, verse 14. God is a just God, and he will judge the world. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's been appointed unto man to die once. If you're ever evangelizing a Buddhist who believes in reincarnation, no, the scriptures declare it's been appointed for us to die once, and then after this, we face the judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you're just a church attender, but I'm here to tell you there's going to come a day when you breathe your last breath and you stand before a holy and just God who is going to do the just thing. God always does the right thing. And according to our proverb this morning, for him to do anything but condemn us eternally would be an abomination to his own character. He would cease to be a good judge. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't just say that God is holy. The Bible doesn't just say that God is just. The Bible says that God is infinitely loving. And in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, which we sang about this morning. We read about it in John. He sent his son to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, specifically the sins of his people within the world, from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus summarized God's law when he was here. It was a, 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 a teacher said, what is the law? What is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like to love your neighbor as yourself. There is nobody in this place, myself included, who has ever loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But Jesus came, and he lived the life that you and I could never live. Well, did he just do that to show that he was God in the flesh? That he was 
the Holy One? Yes, but no. That was not the only reason why he did that. We all know that as Christians, Jesus died for our sins. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what is not talked about enough is that Jesus lived for our righteousness. Jesus lived to be that perfect Passover lamb. Jesus lived a life where he earned the blessings of keeping the law perfectly. See, if you break the law, if, you, if, you, if you're a lawbreaker, you receive the curses. If you keep the law, you receive the blessings. Jesus is the law keeper. You and I are the lawbreakers. Why do I mention that? Because Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he's hanging on the cross. So there's a moment he, he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying there's greater fulfillment in David's words here, and they're happening right now in this moment. What was happening? There's a verse that summarizes all of it, that it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, He, meaning God the Father, made Him, meaning God the Son, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God through Him. It says Jesus became sin. Does that mean Jesus became sinful? No, it does not. Jesus was the Holy One on the cross. What it means is our sin as God's people was imputed onto him. It was credited to him. He took our guilt upon himself. And in that moment, God poured out all of his holy indignation on Jesus Christ. He poured out his wrath on Christ in full, satisfying his justice against his people. That is why Jesus looked up to heaven and said, it is finished. What is finished? The work I came to do. The price has been paid. And that's also why it says in Isaiah 53, which brother quoted earlier, verse 11, yet, it was, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. Why was the Lord pleased to crush him? Because Jesus became guilt. He became our guilt. It was pleasing because God, to do anything but crush him, would be an abomination to his character. He became the wickedness. Jesus was no longer viewed as being innocent. He was viewed as being guilty. God poured out his wrath on him and crushed him. But we need to understand something, that this wasn't just the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father, but it wasn't just the will of the Father. Jesus himself did it willingly. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up again. Jesus was in full agreement. It's not cosmic child abuse, as the atheists like to say when they're trying to criticize the gospel. No, Jesus was in agreement. The Spirit was in agreement. God chose a people for himself before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, I'm going to die for those people. And the Spirit said, I'm going to apply that work to the people's hearts at the ordained time. And not only did Jesus do it willingly, he did it joyfully. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is actually much more profound than we have time to, to really enter into today. But what we need to understand is that it wasn't just God the Father who was joyful about crushing. It wasn't him that was the only one who was pleased. It, Jesus was also joyful about the work that was being done, which is why Isaiah 53, verse 11, that I quoted a few minutes ago, goes on and says, uh, 
When you make him a restitution offering, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied for with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a blood-bought believer in this place, I have good news to you. Jesus Christ carried your iniquities, which would leave you condemned before God. And that is why Jesus said, it is finished. Because it was. There's no other payment to be made. It's not Jesus and your good works. It's not Jesus and circumcision as the Galatians thought. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ according to the scriptures to the glory of God alone. Nothing else to add. It's exactly why. The only sufficient answer to that great dilemma I mentioned earlier, how can a holy and just God forgive unholy and unjust sinners like you and I without compromising his holiness and justice? The only answer is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient answer. He paid the price allowing God to be, as it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, both just and the justifier. Jesus physically died and took on the fullness of God's wrath for his people. But we know the story does not end there. Track with me here. Jesus lived for our righteousness, died for our sins, but then he rose again from the grave on the third day, conquering sin and death, giving us the hope of eternal life. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If the resurrection is not true, then we have no hope. But the resurrection is true. So we have the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned. We have the fact that he died for our sins, but then he rose to give us the hope of eternal life. That righteousness that he lived for, that's where the second half of verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 comes into play. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God through him. That's why Jesus told us to go and preach the gospel. This is the message that we have that they can be made righteous. How, do we, how are we made righteous? God's grace gives us the ability to have faith in Jesus Christ, to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from our self-righteousness and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And faith needs to be understood. So many people don't understand what faith is. Every single person in this room right now who's here is exercising faith. Well, almost everyone. There's a couple of people right now who are standing on their feet. The rest of you guys are sitting in pews. Why are you sitting in those pews? Why did you feel comfortable that you could sit down? Because you had faith that they would hold you up when you sat down. That's faith. I'm standing on the stage because I know it will hold me up. True faith in Christ is not simply acknowledging that he exists. It's not simply acknowledging that he even went to a cross. It's saying, I am trusting in that work fully, that it will hold me up the same way this pew is holding you up when you stand before God at the judgment. Because the righteousness that Christ earned for us when he kept the law when we have faith like that, that law is imputed onto us. Now, does that mean when it says we become the righteousness of God through him? Does that mean we become holy? No, the same way it doesn't mean Jesus becomes sinful. It means that his righteousness is imputed onto us. That means we're viewed as holy. Now, I don't think too many people understand the depth of that. We understand it theologically and conceptually. For me, I understood it greater when I became a father. And I began to see my children. I look at them with all their insufficiencies, with all their shortcomings. And I look at my son, even the one with, with issues, and I say, I know what he's supposed to be. I know what he can be. I'm going to look at him with that love. See, 
2 Corinthians 5.21 deals with the legal side of it. We become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. But John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God, even to those who believe in his name. One of the biggest lies in the world right now is that everyone's a child of God. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's only those who are in Christ Jesus who are children of God. What does that mean? Well, the same way I look at my sons and, uh, with love, even through all their imperfections, I'm an imperfect father. Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he, he's getting baptized by John the Baptist. You guys know the story. A voice comes from heaven that says, this is my beloved son whom I'm loved and whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because unlike you and I, who never loved the Lord our God perfectly with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. This wasn't a moment in the Lord Jesus Christ's life. Not a moment, not a second, not a microsecond where he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because he did, that voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and well please. When we're given the right to be called children of God, ladies and gentlemen, when we stand at the judgment and trusting in, that, in Christ's righteousness like you're sitting in these pews, God will look at us and he'll say, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I loved and whom I'm well pleased. Not because we've done anything to earn that, not because we've lived a good life, because Christ earned the blessing that's been imputed onto us. So when God looks at us, it's not that he doesn't know what we've done, he does. But he knows who Christ is and what Christ has done. That Christ lived the life that you and I could never live, and that is given to us. I know it took a while to get here, but this is the encouragement that I was talking about at the start of the sermon. A lot of times we talk about finding rest, Rightfully so, in the mercy and love of God. But we need to understand that there's also, as believers, rest in the justice of God. What are you talking about, Michael? In the same way when Jesus was on the cross and our guilt was given to him, it would have been an abomination for God not to condemn him. When we come to Christ in faith, for God to do anything else but to look at us and call us into that rest that heavenly place to be with him for all of eternity would be an abomination to his character. So we can find rest also in his just character this morning. For God to do anything less than that to the justified, those who are in Christ Jesus would be an abomination because of what Christ has done. So if you're in Christ this morning, be encouraged. Find rest knowing that no matter what we're going through, no matter what the last three and a half years are like, no matter what you're dealing with in your life right now, it's all passing. We're going to be with Jesus for eternity. I know that's sometimes hard to hold on to because we live in the here and now and we just see the tangible, but we hold on by faith what the Word teaches us. At the same time, if you're not in Christ Jesus, be warned. Be warned this morning. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Why does the wrath of God remain on him? Because they're not justified. You're not justified. And for God to do anything but condemn you would be an abomination to his character. I don't know the, the people in this church well enough to make any type of assumptions, nor would I even if I did. But I will tell you, I will implore you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I'll quote Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him 
while he is near. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and our God for he will be abundantly pardoned. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. That's an encouragement. I want to just end by quoting a psalm and then we're going to pray. I have been watching the clock, Pastor Joey. So I'm mindful. You've got a nice big clock in the back here. Psalm chapter 37, verses 27 through 29. It's both a, 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 a proclamation to those who are not justified, but also an encouragement to those of us who are, by God's grace. It says, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. If you are a true child of God, you will persevere to the end, not because of your own strength and your own merit, but because God's grace is at work in you. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, I am what I am by God's grace. Understand that. He said, but grace was not ineffective in me. I worked harder than anyone else. God's grace in our lives causes us to move and work towards holiness, not looking to our own self-righteousness or our efforts, but looking towards Christ, who's not just the author, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, but also the perfecter of our faith. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He's the author and he's the perfecter. We work out our salvation with fear and troubling, but that too is a work of grace. So rest in that this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Lastly, this is the very last thing. With that encouragement, which I hope it was, I hope it's been an encouragement for you to hear this this morning. I'm preaching to myself more than you guys this morning, I'm telling you. I need to hear this all the time. But if that is the encouragement to your hearts, let us be reminded that there are others who need to hear that message. That Christ came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That Christ came to bear the wrath of God. That Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. I pray that this would move your hearts to go and not keep this to yourself for your own encouragement. No, that it would cause you to go speak to your neighbors, cause you to speak to your family members, cause you to speak to your coworkers, young people, to speak to your classmates. It's hard to be a, a, a young person today. Christianity is mocked. It's looked at as a bunch of bigots. It's, it's this warped idea, be bold. Open your mouth. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. No matter what type of persecution you might endure, no matter what kind of mockery you might have to face, you're going to be with him. God's going to look at you and see Christ and say, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I'm well pleased. pleased. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word here. I pray, Lord God, that any areas, Lord God, that I might, might have fumbled this morning, Lord God, that you would cause these saints, Lord God, to not remember those things, Lord God, but the, the, the parts, Lord God, that were rightfully divided, Lord God, I pray that you would deposit them into their hearts. For those here that might not know you, Lord God, who might just be playing church or might even be here as a visitor and not even know why they're here, Lord God, I pray that you would bestow your grace upon them this morning and draw them to yourself, Lord God and save them, Lord God. Father, I pray that this 
message would resonate in the hearts of the leadership here, Lord God, and move them to greater mission, Lord God. I thank you for Pastor Joey and his heart, Lord God. I thank you for the fellowship we've had. I thank you for um, just the work you're doing here in Newtown, Lord God. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of it for a Sunday. I pray that you get all the glory for all this, Lord God, and that your will would be done in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.